Ruth chapter 4, 13 through 22. And once you have it, would you please stand for the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the woman of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, A son has been born to you, Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salome. Salome fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Last week, in our last section of Scripture, as we looked at chapter 4, 1 through 12, we saw Boaz dealing very shrewdly with this unnamed Mr. So-and-so, an unnamed man who was, had the first opportunity to be the redeemer, the kinsman redeemer for Naomi and for Ruth. And we saw how He had this ability, he was given this ability to redeem both Ruth and Naomi, to legalize this contract and to make a public declaration that he was going to marry Ruth and take the land. So where does that end us now? If you kind of look at the very end, it feels kind of like this anticlimactic thing, especially starting in verse 18, where it ends with this genealogy. It feels like thud. A kind of a, a hard landing with a, a genealogy. So where does it leave us? If you look carefully at this, it couldn't leave me just ending with a talk about sexual intimacy and marriage. And I will go there. It could leave us with a, a story of a grandmother whose heart has been warmed. And we will talk about that. But I want to give us four things specifically this morning that I am going to be nailing in, kind of drilling in on. And the first thing is this. We are going to develop from this scripture a robust, beautiful understanding of the covenant of marriage. That is going to give us a picture for what it means for us as we look to marriage, as we look at our marriage, as we look at what God's relationship is to marriage and how that all connects. We are going to have a robust and beautiful understanding of the covenant of marriage. Then we are going to look, I'm going to give you some, uh, a few thoughts on what does it look like to have a robust theology of hospitality. As we kind of wrap up this book, a robust theology of hospitality, of welcome. Then we are going to, I'm going to give you some reminders as we look back over the book to see how God works in and through redemptive history for his glory. And then lastly, I am going to give you a huge picture of how this total book works into the grand scheme of things, and ultimately should lead us to greater worship and service. So let's start off with looking and developing a robust uh, theology and understanding of the covenant of marriage. In the last section, in this last section, we see the consummation of God's plan working through the entire uh, book of Ruth. 
And when I say consummation, there's a few things that you can kind of be thinking of. One, you can be thinking about, man, there, there's this point in a, a business deal when all the parties gather together around a table and they're going to consummate this deal by signing off and there's going to be benefits to this party by receiving the check that they no longer have to pay a mortgage. And the other party is going to be signing off on this deal and say, man, we now have home ownership and all the blessings that come from home ownership, like paying for water and mowing your own grass and taking care of the things that are falling apart, all the blessings that take place. But if you have kind of a biblical understanding of this word of consummation, if you might be reading it going, oh... There's some other things going on here. When a husband and wife seal a deal within the covenant of marriage, there is something that happens on the wedding night. They, they, there's the consummation of, I do. Do you? I do. And there's also the consummation, the lastly, this idea of the consummation of all things in God's story of redemption. All things are building up from Genesis chapter 1 to finding their final consummation in God. And we're waiting for that final consummation, right? On this end, we are waiting for, come Lord Jesus, come. Things are broken and, and we are desperate. But we know that we have hope and he, Christ has sealed the deal. But, and we're getting a foretaste of these things. And we're longing for that final day. But there's going to be that final consummation when all things are right. And we can stand seeing Christ face to face as he is. Beautiful, powerful, reigning, glorious. So this morning, we're, we're going to be looking as readers, we are going to try to get a bird's eye view of what God has in store with this cons- the story of consummation between Boaz and Ruth. One of the interesting things about this story is that it has all kinds of buildup. It has all kinds of precise and minute detail. You've got one entire chapter describing a day in the field. One day, a whole chapter. You've got uh, a a whole uh, section that is dealing with uh, Ruth at the feet of Boaz, at the instructions of her mother-in-law saying, you go and you do exactly as he says. And then, what do you have? In one verse, we have a wedding and a baby just like that. In one verse. Like it just happens, you right? And uh, so the resolution to the problem in this book is solved miraculously and amazingly in just one verse. Oh yeah, it's kind of like, a, oh yeah, they got married and had a baby. It's kind of a, another one of those... It just so happened that Boaz was passing by. It just so happened that she showed up in his field. It just so happened that Mr. So-and-so passed by the city gate. Oh, yeah, they got married and had a baby. That's kind of how this is all working. Did you notice, though, that the narrator, what he did here in in, in a very, very intentional kind of way, And if you have your own Bible, you may want to underline it because it's really easy to miss. You got this in verse 13. Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went to her. And here's what you you could probably underline if you're an underliner. And the Lord enabled her to conceive. God's activity is going on. So Boaz made Ruth his wife, and he went to her. Boaz went to Ruth is, the, is a typical, he went to or went into, is a, is a biblical uh, Jewish Hebrew kind of euphemism for sexual intercourse between a man and a woman. So Boaz went to Ruth, was not just a, hey, let's go hang out, let's have dinner together. It was a They had sexual intimacy. But I want you to notice the order here in the first few sentences. Boaz made Ruth his wife. And then what happened? He had sexual 
intimacy with her. A sexual relationship between a man and a woman has been designed by who? God. It has been designed by God to be exercised within the beautiful and safe boundaries of a marriage relationship. Today, the reality is that we have made sex to be strictly a fulfillment of our, our stimula- for stimulation, for, for pure pleasure. That's really what kind of sex is all about. Watch, watch any of our commercials and you go, what is going on here? It's for stimulation. It's for, for pleasure. And it has little to no depth or relationship. It has become this super, super uh, natural or supernatural, superficial act of just pure stimulation in which we attempt to selfishly satisfy our own desires and our own urges. What modern man and woman has made sex is much to the contrary of what God has designed sex for. God intended sex to be the consummation, if you will, meant to be the climax, the climax of a close and personal and intimate marriage covenant. The primary biblical picture of marriage is that of a covenant, a covenant between God and people. It's, it's kind of the primary picture that we see in Scripture. God has a covenant relationship between Himself and His people. And it's God, it's, it's designed to, to be communicated within this covenant of marriage. We get our meaning and we get our models for relationship from the covenant relationship God has with His people. That's where we get our pictures for marriage. There are, two, there are three main elements of the marriage covenant that we can derive from the Bible. The first is, there is a promise of committed love between a husband and a wife. You always see that in a covenant. There is a promised committed love statement. On top of that, you also see that there is a public declaration of a commitment, of a covenant. It is publicly declared. That is why I believe it is absolutely critical that if you are going to be married, if you find yourself engaged, you are standing not just between a judge and maybe your best man or friend in a courthouse, even though that's legal, but I think it's critical that there is a public declaration before God and His people that I will be faithful. I am committed to love this person. I take you so-and-so to be my husband, to be my wife, for better, for worse, riches or poor, sickness and health, till death do us part. I am committed to you. Do you all hear that? But there's this last piece that we always see. There is a personal communion, if you will, between a husband and wife in this relationship. It is personal. It is near. And what do we see here in chapter 4? We see that Boaz is demonstrating at these three things. You see that Boaz deeply loves and honors Ruth. And even Ruth's mother-in-law. To the extent that he loves her so much that he is willing to do what? I'm willing to purchase this land. I'm willing to abide by the law and work stealthily to gain you as my wife. I love you. You also see that there is in the the city gates, he makes a public declaration. I will take her and I'm redeeming also the land. She will be my wife. Do you all hear this? And there's even a blessing we talked about last week that the people said over Ruth and Boaz. There is a public declaration, and you also see, even though it is brief, in verse 13, that there are sexual relationships within this marriage covenant. So God's covenant with his people is always, always, and I cannot underline it, highlight it, make it in big enough words, always, always permanent. Marriage is to be permanent. And the marriage covenant between a man and a woman is to be, say it with me, 
permanent. It's designed after how God has his relationship with his people. And God never leaves nor forsakes his people. And if our marriage is to be designed and to be looking like Christ and his relationship with his church, our marriages are to be permanent in a world that lacks permanency. When we think of marriage as a model of God's relationship with his people, we have a solid foundation on which to build our own marriages and how to encourage other friends and family members to stand in their marriages. Again, as we look at, the, at sex in, in our modern context, right? Its primary function is purely satisfaction of our desires. However, in the Bible, sexual relations are designed not only for pleasure. If you want to talk about pleasure, there's a certain book that has, uh, has been basically banned for young Jewish boys until they reach a certain age. And that is the book of Song of Solomon. It's a highly erotic book. So sex is designed for pleasure. And it is to be beautiful and amazing. But just as importantly, it is designed for the purpose of reproduction. Ruth and Boaz are intimate. And what happens? Ruth gets pregnant with child. God's providence is extremely visible here in their relationship. Because Ruth appeared to be married to Malon for how many years? Do you remember? Ten years. Ten years, and yet did not conceive. Boaz and Ruth, immediately, it's almost like that night. That night, she became pregnant. It was almost immediately and had a son. God's hand was again working behind the scenes to ensure that his plan, his good plan, was going to be accomplished. Moreover, in verse 13, it makes it clear that God, God gave Ruth the ability to conceive and have a child. The Lord's timing is always perfect. It's always in His timing. It's in His timing. And He works His plan, whatever it looks like, whether it is to have a child, not to have a child, whether to be married, not be married, to have this job, not to have this job, whatever God's plan is, it is ultimately for your benefit and to the glory and honor of His glorious name. Whatever God's plan is. And consequently, it is for your joy and delight, whatever God's plan might be. Whatever it is. So something should be stated about conception and birth and the Lord's work in both of these activities. The Lord had a plan that he was working behind the scenes in the lives of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz. God weaves all these decisions and the everyday occurrences of our lives into his magnificent, beautiful plan. And we witness him doing the same things in the lives of Boaz and Ruth. However, what we can see and what Boaz and Ruth cannot see is that they will have a son who is going to be the grandfather of David. Through whose line the Messiah, Jesus Christ, is going to be born. The Lord had plans for this child of Ruth and Boaz before the child was even born. And I, but I don't want to get too far ahead of myself here. So God has these plans before the child was going to be born that he is going to be the grandfather of King David and ultimately the Messiah. So in chapter 1, after the death of her husband and her sons, Naomi could not imagine how her God could provide her with a son. He could, she just couldn't imagine it. There was despair there. She, she got to the point of, don't call, me, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara. 
There's no chance for a son. There's no chance for an heir, for her and her family, for her to be cared for. She was bitter. She cried out that God had even gone against her. And she went to Moab full, so she thought. And she came back to Bethlehem absolutely empty. However, what she did not realize was that she was far from empty. As Ruth had stuck with her, committed herself to her, and became a follower of the one true God. Ruth was the means through which God provided Naomi a grandson. The townspeople blessed Obed and prayed that God would make his name great in all of Israel. To Naomi, he would be the, I love this language because it's even the description of who Jesus is. He is the restorer of life and the nourisher of your old age. It's beautiful. The townspeople proclaim that Ruth, she, they had to say to Naomi, listen, this is about Ruth, and you need to hear this. Her faithful, your faithful, God-fearing daughter-in-law is worth more than seven sons. And what would seven sons do? It would lock her into an amazing retirement plan where she would be cared for till the day she dies. And your daughter-in-law, she is far more valuable than even seven sons. So while Naomi in chapter 1 could not possibly imagine how she was going to survive, to eke it out, despite the fact that Ruth was with her in chapter 4, she now has a redeemer grandson who is praised and blessed by all the people and will one day be in the line of the Messiah. God will achieve, hear this, God will achieve what the human mind cannot conceive. One more time if you're a writer downer. God will achieve what the human mind cannot conceive. And he proves it again and again to Naomi throughout the book of Ruth, culminating in the, the birth of her grandson, the grandfather of David. She could not even believe this could happen. She just wanted to survive. She could not even begin to, how could this all work out? But God does what? So in the beginning, Naomi was bitterly bitterly accused God of emptying her life and robbing her of her husband and her two sons. But now, when the women are consoling her, even though she has lost her sons, she has gained a daughter-in-law. And what a daughter-in-law Ruth is through marriage. Ruth loves Naomi. In fact, in her action, we observe one of the most dramatic demonstrations of the meaning of the Hebrew word for love or kindness, hesed. She gives us one of the most vivid demonstrations of it. I'm still in this, this marriage covenant thing, so stick, stick with me. When, whereas our, our modern definitions of, of love tend to view the world, the word as an emotional term, right? It's the soupy, hallmark movie kind of thing where it's just this deep, and it's sappy. And one of the things I don't ever want to hear, this is just a warning for you. If I ever hear you, and it's just kind of a product of our, our culture, if I hear people say, yeah, I've just fallen out of love. I'm going to kick you in the tail. Because what a biblical definition and display of the Old Testament love is that love is fundamentally an expression of not sappy, emotional love. It is a demonstration and expression of commitment. That is what love is. I am committed to you. The kind of devotion to which Ruth had given such an eloquent verbal 
verbal expression in uh, verses chapter 1, 16 and 17. Do you remember that? Ruth said to her, don't urge me to leave you or to return from following you. Could you imagine this in a kind of a marriage vow? Don't, don't tell me to go for where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. Not only that, and there shall I be buried. What, what, what a beautiful expression of the commitment of love. Love is not just demonstrated in words, though, friends. It is expressed in the acts of kindness, placing the welfare of others well before yourself. In fact, more than anyone else in the history of Israel, Ruth embodies the, the fundamental principle of Israel's ethic. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart. And then in Leviticus 19, it says, and you are to love your neighbor as yourself. She, she demonstrated this. In Leviticus 19.34, Moses instructs the Israelites to love the stranger as they love themselves. And ironically, it is a stranger from Moab. The stranger from Moab who shows the Israelites what true love really looks like. A stranger from the outside. So in the times of the judges, when, when Israel was under attack from both within and from without, when sin and disobedience was just like abounding and overflowing, it was perhaps it might have seemed that Israel would disintegrate and God's, God's covenant promises would be lost on these people. Because everyone was doing whatever they wanted to do. However, in the midst of all this strife, in the midst of all this turmoil, God was preserving his people and continuing to work out his plan and his providence in the lives of these absolutely ordinary people. He continued to work his covenant of love and redemption in the lives of those who truly love him. One commentator put it this way. Surrounded by the Lord's covenant love, they experienced his redemptive grace. Not only in establishing and developing their personal relationships, but in those relationships reflecting what he was doing on the macro scale in preparing his people for a coming king. So in the lives of these, in this ordinary family, in a time of great hardship and in a time of great suffering, two people trusted God to provide for them and to bless them. Two people decided, and listen, two people decided no matter what their circumstances might be, no matter what, they would live and demonstrate hessedness, love and kindness regardless of the cost. This family, used by God, God used in working out his plan in and through their lives, this family was blessed beyond all imagination and was able to bless all the nations and all people for all eternity because of their faithfulness. Second major point. I want us to now kind of look at, uh, give you some practical thoughts and practical working out on developing a theology of welcome and hospitality. Ruth has, honestly, she has come a long way in this book. And I think if she was the average person in an average congregation, in an average context, she would have said, I am out of here. If this is how it looks to be a part of the people of God, count me out, right? She wasn't hardly respected. She had gone from being an outcast but, and a stranger to one whose existence even Naomi would, would scarcely acknowledge. She even continued to call her Ruth the Moabite, right? And she moved to becoming a wife of an upstanding citizen, 
the great, the, the grandmother of Israel's um, future king. She was a, she was a daughter-in-law who would be recognized better than seven sons. She had come a long way, yet, hear this, yet she first found a welcome, her first real welcome from Boaz and from God while she was still an outsider. So here's some questions I, I want you to really wrestle with. Here's the first question. Can people like Ruth find a similar welcome in our church and in our homes. Total outsiders. The world may cast them off and say, mm, really, those people? In fact, they're, they're Muslim or they're gay or use drugs and alcohol or this guy's an atheist or just agnostic or just an all-around jerk. This person's a hermit and just never comes out of his or her house or they're obviously living in sin. Do those people find their welcome in our church? In our homes? Our, our, our homes, our, our social circles, uh, is this church a place where the least, the last, and the lost can come without feeling looked down upon, without being judged, where they feel welcome and, and hospitality is just poured out? Is our church a, a safe place where people whose lifestyles are notorious in our community can come without being stared at and without being judged? Are, are we, as, as a community of faith, Missio Day Church, are we in any danger of our fellowship being known as that church where all the sinners go? I'd say the answer to this is no. We're not in any danger of that. In fact, we do a great job of collecting people from all other kind of churches, right? But what about those people who are notorious in our community? Is, this, or is there anything about us that people say, that's the church where they all go? Well, oh, would God just explode our minds and our hearts and our church walls to welcome the last, the least, and the, the dangerous the lost? Or are we good at only welcoming those who are already somewhat religious? Those who are at least in some measure already speak the language of our church community and whose faces, you could take that in any way you want, whose faces already fit in. This is a serious challenge for all of us to really ponder, not just for me as a pastor, not just for your elders or your deacons. This is a serious thing for all of us to consider. Each of us has a role in what people feel when they come through our church doors and into our communities and into our homes. Will we welcome them? Will we sit with them? Will we speak to them afterwards? Will we invite them in the front door, not the back door? Will we welcome people? Will someone make them feel special, important, wanted, no matter how messy their lives really are? Will you make them feel like a person that has eternal worth and value? You are created in the image of God, and you are welcome here with all of your junk. Because you know what? That's me. I am a mess. And you want to know something about our church? <laughs> They're a mess too. But thanks be to the grace of God, His working in our lives. We are constantly being renewed and looking more and more like Jesus Christ. There's hope for you as there's hope for me. Come, be, be a part of this. The reality is that this is all what Ruth did for Naomi. 
At Naomi's lowest ebb in her life, Ruth made it clear that she was bound to her forever and nothing could tear her away from her. You bitter old mother-in-law, I'm sticking with you. I love you. I'm committed to you. I see worth and value in you. I don't care if you call yourself bitter. I still see you as pleasant. It's what Boaz did for Ruth, right? He demonstrated publicly, out in the open, in the town square, he demonstrated publicly that he found Ruth to be a valuable human being. Even though she was a Moabite widow, she was valuable. And more fundamentally, friends, though this is, this is what the Lord did for each of them, more fundamentally, this is what he did for us, right? This is what God has done for each one of us. He is the redeemer behind our story and our stories of personal salvation. This is what God did. He is the most hospitable one in the room. While we were yet sinners, he opened the doors and died for us. Third big picture is I want you to see God's work in redemptive history. What, what God is doing, and hopefully you can apply this to uh, your story of salvation and redemption. I want you to be able to see this, hopefully, in other people that you're going to be welcoming and connecting with. One of the things that we've learned is that one must have the right and the resources and the resolve to redeem. We saw that in Boaz. He had the right, he had the resources, and he had the resolve to make this happen. But what about this Obed? It kind of ends with a thud with Obed. Why was he mentioned in the end as a redeemer, the restorer of life, the one who nourishes the old age? He's just a baby. The whole spot is on Naomi and Obed. Why? I don't want you to miss it. This, this is a picture. At the end of the book, narrator wants to put in our minds the picture that he gave us at the beginning of the book. Let's, so we're going to do some comparing of Ruth chapter 1 and Ruth chapter 4, particularly when it comes to Naomi, where the spotlight is here, and think about what Obed is showing us about God in Naomi's life. First thing that we can see is that God brings his people from death to life. That's what God does. All in redemptive history. He is the God who brings his people from death to life. The book of Ruth opens up with what? Three funerals. Right? Her husband dies. There goes Elimelech. 66% chance of survival yet. Malon and Chilion dead. It ends with what? A wedding and a baby. Death, life, and to use Naomi's word in Ruth chapter 1, the Almighty is sovereign over both. Almighty sovereign over life and death. He brings his people from death to life. Life ultimately always triumphs over death. We see that in the end of the book. And I'm talking about Ruth, and I'm also talking about Revelation. Life always triumphs over death. Secondly, we see that God brings his people from a cursed place to a blessed place. Chapter 1, she has a curse of all curses in ancient Israel. She has no heir whatsoever to carry on her name, to provide for her. At the end, she's getting prayed over these blessings after blessings after blessings after blessings over her. God moves people from place of being cursed to a place of blessing. Do you see that in your own life? We also see, number three, that God brings his people from a place of bitterness to happiness. Does it happen like that? Mm -mm. Sometimes. But 
God brings his people from bitterness to happiness. Can you imagine now the smile on Naomi's face at the end of this book as she is hoarding this baby? Hoarding this baby. Don't you call me bitter anymore. Call me ecstatic. She's overjoyed and she's been brought from bitterness to happiness. The joy of the Lord is my strength and I am seeing the hand of God in my life. He's brought me from this terrible, bitter place to joy, happiness. God also brings his people from emptiness to fullness, right? You remember at the end of chapter 1, what we've got is Naomi with her hands empty saying, saying to the women in Bethlehem, I've got nothing. I've got nothing. The Lord has brought me back empty, and yet next to her stands what? Who? Ruth, the Moabite daughter-in-law, such that through her at the end of the book she's holding not, no longer empty hands, She's holding a baby as a result of Ruth, the Moabite daughter-in-law next to her. From emptiness to fullness. And the women of Bethlehem are now saying, listen, that daughter-in-law who you thought you were coming back empty with, she is better than seven sons. You also see here that God brings his people from despair to hope. All these sound really similar, but really they're very different. Despair to hope, from death to life, curse to blessing, bitterness to happiness, emptiness to emptiness to fullness. And finally we see how God brings his people from despair to now hope. And this book ends not with a look back at the unbearable past. What does it do? It ends with this, this genealogy of David. It, it looks forward 10 generations to an unbelievable, unimaginable future. And she didn't even see it coming. There's a hope. So when, we, when somebody dies in our, in our, from our family that are believers in Christ, man, we, we grieve differently, Right? We grieve, but yet we do it with hope. Hope. The future of where this, this line is going, is going to go to, to David. And this is where we're reminded in Ruth chapter 4, verse 22, that this is not the end of the story. Ruth chapter 4, verse 22 is not the end of the book. It might be the end of this little segment called Ruth. It's not the end of the book. So this is going to be where I'm going to land. This is kind of the big ending kind of thing. This, that's where Ruth ends. And yet Matthew chapter one keeps on going. David was the father of Solomon and so on and so on and so on until you get to verse chapter, uh, verse 16 and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus and was called the Christ. There is a much greater king pointed to in Ruth 4 than King David. It's more than David. The line is going, to all, going all the way to King Jesus. King David was hardly a comma. It's pointing all the way to the exclamation mark, Jesus. One commentator said this, at the end of the book, we discovered that God has in all of this been pursuing bigger plans, bigger plans than bringing together two worthy individuals. Bigger plans than that. Can you imagine that? If you're in it, you're going, that's enough for me. But God is up to something grander underneath. There's a, an, a powerful undercurrent that's about ready to just explode onto the scene. He goes on to say, what looks like a simple story of personal emptiness filled, emptiness filled and personal needs met turns out to be God's way of meeting a far greater need. 
So we can see throughout this book of Ruth that God is reigning supreme in all this thing, these things. He takes care of Naomi. He takes care of Ruth. He takes care of Boaz while never forgetting, ever forgetting his ultimate saving plan. Famines in Bethlehem and the death of Elimelech, Malon and Chilion all serve God's plan to get to Israel's King David. David is a king after God's own heart, but I'm going to tell you, he is far from perfect. And for sure, he is not God. Israel needs hope in a better, more perfect king than David. As Matthew 1 shows us, God's plan goes past David to the, to the arrival of King Jesus who redeems his people on a cross, renews us by the resurrection, and gives us ultimate hope for restoration upon his consummation, his final return. That's what all of history is looking forward to. All of it. We are looking and longing for this final consummation of all things. In the meantime, we're being renewed, we're being restored, but we're longing for this ultimate thing. The reality is that we see so little of what happens in just one lifetime, in our lifetime, right? We see so little. It's nearly impossible to see and to know what part of our lives will play in God's ultimate plan. For salvation. You have no clue what your faithfulness in the now, in the today, is going to do for future generations. God is going, could be using you in this powerful movement of revival, of restoration, of eyes opening to the glories and the beauty of Jesus Christ. You have no clue what's going to be going on, but we do know how the plan ends. The plan ends with King Jesus sitting on the throne in all of his redeemed people. I love it. All of his redeemed people praising him for his glory and for their joy for all of eternity. That's where it ends. And that's what makes you and me distinct. Believers in Jesus, we've been saved by the blood of Christ. We've been called by name to be His. And we've been called to be a part of something in this world, to be faithfully. We've got the great commission. Go, therefore, into all the world, into every nation, baptizing them. That's not enough. If you're a Baptist, maybe that's enough. But baptizing them and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And then he ends with this, this great thing. And lo, I, maybe that's the King James Version. And lo, I will be with you till the end of the ages. This is what it is all building up to. We've got something to do in, in our chapter of life that we live Faithfulness, obedience. But let me end with this before we go to communion. Listen carefully to Revelation chapter 5. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take a scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you made them a kingdom of priests, a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. Then I, John, the apostle who wrote these things down, then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with one loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and, and honor and glory and blessing. 
And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the sea and in the sea and all that is in them. That's a total picture of absolutely everything. Saying this, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. That's their song that they continue to sing all throughout, cre- uh, throughout eternity. That is what they sing. If you don't like singing now, I'm going to tell you, Get used to it and start loving it because that is going to be your primary act of work. Worship. Singing in this time of new creation to the one who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. You get done singing that to him who sits on the throne. To the Lamb. That's where all creation is pointing to. That is the story of consummation. And that is where we are going, brothers and sisters, and calling people along with us. Amen? Amen. Don't you just give me an amen like that. I, I, I mean, when you say amen, do you know what that means? Let it be. Make it so. That's where we're going, and we're bringing those along with us. Let it be. Make it so. Let's pray. Father God, I love endings, and I love that you are making all these things beautiful and powerful and needed God, I also know that I have gone over time, but Lord, I pray that you will use this over timeness for the sake of the edification of your people, that you build them up, that you equip them, that you remind them, that you reorient them, that you focus them on Jesus Christ, him crucified, him resurrected, and him now reigning the consummation of the the whole thing. Keep our eyes, God, fixed on that. Continue to bring us from one degree to the next degree, from despair to hope, from pain to joy. Lord, use this story. May we find ourselves deeply embedded in the story of Ruth. This is our story, God. And Lord, as we come to the Lord's Supper, would you give us repentant hearts For that is one of the things that you have came into this world saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And we know that you have come calling not the righteous to repentance, but sinners. We also know, Lord, that unless we repent, we will perish. And so, Lord, as we come to the Lord's Supper, give us repentant hearts. Seeing in light of the mirror of Scripture looking into our hearts the areas that we need to grieve and long for your kingdom to come more fully in our hearts. So make it so, God, this morning. Make it so. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said.